Thank you, Faisal and the South Asian Center for inviting me. Uh, let me first say this is a work in progress. So it has several disadvantages. It may spill over the time limit. It'll be a little dense. And this may not really go to any determined conclusion. So with these warnings, uh, let me just say, begin with the obvious, which is that Tagore is burdened with a huge reputation. You know, poetry, plays, songs, essays, letters, paintings, and of course the Nobel Prize. And uh, what I want to do here is to also burden him, add to that burden, by talking about something else, or really about an insight which he has, uh, which I think has uh, important resonances for us today. And that is his insight that it's a pretty simple one, that while the world was getting smaller through developments in science and technology, and the world, remember, is almost 100 years ago when he's thinking about it, also with social and cultural exchanges, uh, it was at the same time generating mutual antagonisms on a global scale. Antagonisms that threatened to destroy the world. Uh, while this observation was formulated at the time of the First World War, it holds resonances, as I said, for our time of neoliberal globalization, when there is an overflow of local battles between nations and ethnicities spread over the world, over the globe. Uh, and maybe even the polite versions of this, which you find in Britain today in the Brexit debate, with all the fears of migrants taking over the privileges of the inhabitants. Though I must also add that, as a necessary corollary, that Tagore may have also objected to the terms of this debate today because uh, he may have actually opposed the European Union because, he, uh, you know, to follow his logic, he uh, once characterized the League of Nations as an organization of gangsters. <laughs> now, uh, let me say at the beginning that Tagore's, the foundational unit of Tagore's thought was global. And I think in a way that marks an exception and a change with other thinkers of mo modern India. Uh, the First World War posed for him the threat of global destruction and it was in this context that he cast about for a universal principle that could rescue the world from this fate. Specifically, what he was looking about and looking for was a principle of universality that would produce a complementarity between the shrinkage of the globe on the one hand and the relationship between its people, because that's the kind of asymmetry that he saw. The World War brought to a crisis for the dissenting and critically minded, the entire idea and ideology of progress that had been the ideology of universalism supplied from the metropolis. Tagore had, from the beginning of the century, become skeptical of the virtues of the West. He identified nationalism as the motivating force of colonialism, which the British inflicted on Africans and Asians, which the wars of which moved him to write at the turn of the century a poem which was called The Sunset of the Century. Consequently, many of the issues of the recent inclusive, in or inconclusive debate on cosmopolitanism, uh, that is, should one posit a single universal principle of belonging or several universal principles of universality, is one that also confronts Tagore, because he is in a context where he is distanced from this reigning idea of progress as the universal principle, and looking around for other principles. He addresses the challenge of producing an alternate universalist principle by drawing on a tradition that developed in modern Indian thought, which is something I call the principle of located universalism. The most important and possibly influential component of this alternate universalism drew from Vedantic thought. Uh, Vedanta basically is the end 
of the Vedas. So it was basically a, 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 a number of speculative philosophical writings which gave to the Vedas, which were mainly ritual in character, a kind of theology. Uh, and these were, of course, done after the Vedas. Now, Vedantic thought had a huge revival from the 19th century onwards. And there are two thinkers I want to very perfunctorily look on. This is Vivekananda and Ram Mohan Roy. Uh, among Hindu thinkers, the most, uh, let me just before that preface that by saying that in general, among the 19th century thinkers, the dominant way of claiming distinction from colonial thought was through the theological. Among Hindu thinkers, the most influential move was to switch and shift to Vedanta in order to lay claim to the power, if not the superiority of Hindu thought, by emphasizing its all-embracing conceptual scope. This allowed modern Hindu thought to advance a counter-universal to the principle of universalism of progress, especially progress, that underlay colonial thought. The notion of Brahman that designated the idea of an essence, basically indexes an essence, that lay both in and outside the manifest world, that was everywhere present, encouraged the sense that Hindu thought offered a counter-universal that could go beyond the universalist claims of progress. So it was this-worldly, other-worldly, everywhere. It was so all-comprehensive. Now, the metaphysics of Vedanta served a dual purpose. First, it established what I have called a located universalism. It posited the universalist principle that paradoxically bore the signs of difference. A universalist explanation of the world was seen as a part of an embedded and distinctive conceptual framework. This was not necessarily a matter of producing an overlapping consensus on the idea of the universal itself. In the hands of thinkers like Tagore, it could offer an alternative explanation of the very principle of the universal. So the very nature of the universal is opened up in Tagore. So it's not just a question of finding universals that will somehow coincide with each other from different traditions. The second element of located universalism was that it was directed to the concerns of this world. It was this worldly, and it privileged this world. Located universalism abjured the privileging of the metaphysical, even as it was grounded and began from the metaphysical. In practice, it deployed the metaphysical as a principle that provided an explanation and an incentive for action in this world. This allowed it to contest the ideas of progress that proclaimed the superiority of the West in, in deciphering and controlling this worldly concerns. And even allowed in some thinkers to incorporate the idea of progress itself within this schema, this new Vedantic, new Vedantic schema. <clears throat> As I promised a little while earlier, I'll deal with two thinkers as a kind of frame to then plot Tagore. One is Vivekananda, the first. <clears throat> Drawing from comparative religion, which was a very major kind of preoccupation with thinkers in the 19th century, he set out to show that Hinduism was superior to other religions <clears throat> because it included all the paths to realization of the absolute ranging from idol worship to physical discipline to meditative practices. Vivekananda also posited an even more comprehensive and higher goal that would require identification with the entirety of creation. Uh, according to Vivekananda, Hinduism also posited this. So it went beyond what the other religions offered in terms of realization. In other words, Vivekananda's path was that of a hierarchized, counter-universal that placed the West as one that was in need of conceptual and spiritual education from the East, even as the East had to incorporate some of the lower but necessary elements of the West to put its superiority 
on a sure footing. So there was exchange, but unequal exchange, hierarchized exchange. Through this scheme, Vivekanand produced what may be termed originative universalism. It was specifically of a Hindu nature of thought that was privileged as the source of the universal. So it was the Hindu which made it universal in a certain sense. The other mode of located universal that derived from Vedanta went back earlier to a founding moment in modern Indian thought, that is to Ram Mohan Roy. Stressing the unmarked oneness of the absolute essence of Brahman, because it does not have any human or any recognizable characteristics, Roy provoked orthodox Hindu religious practices to rethink its polytheistic basis and also its customs, which he regarded as fashioned by corrupt uh, priests. Equally, and what is important for me here, is that this belief in the essential oneness of the universe could also sit well with a cosmopolitanism that even allowed him to salute the legacy of the French Revolution and of liberal values. Roy represented what may properly be called an imminent universalism that seeks not to hierarchize through the claims to an universal principle, but simply stresses the grounding of an universalist outlook on a specific tradition of thought. Now, Tagore's principle of universalism, I argue, is drawn from Roy and in the sense that it is a principle of imminent universalism. But Tagore marks out his own distinctive conceptual space, distinct from Roy. The most important theological departure he makes is a firm commitment to a non-identitarian ethics. Let me illustrate this through his story of creation. According to Tagore, <clears throat> in the beginning was Lord the Creator. He was defined, the Creator was defined by his capacity to love. And in order to fulfill this desire, he creates an other whom he can love and be loved in, in turn. The other here is creation. So the Creator produces creation in order to be loved because he is defined above all by love. At the core of this idea of the creator is the Vedantic, uh, let me just say here that the Vedantic is also combined with another tradition. There are two traditions that Tagore combines in this idea of the creator as one who produces an other which is the creation in order to love the other. At the core of this idea of the creator is the Vedantic idea of the Brahman. The creator is one who is omnipresent, distributed throughout creation, including the inner self of man. Tagore draws on a theistic interpretation of the Brahman and in this form combines it with the Bhakti tradition, which is another tradition of Hindu thought that is based on the idea of love between uh, the Lord Krishna and Radha his uh, lover. The formulation betrays the lineage of another thinker even more intimate with Tagore and that is his father Devendranath Tagore. Devendranath followed Roy, Ramon Roy, in thinking about Brahman as a single all-absolute essence but deferred from him over time because he was looking for not just Brahman, but what he was also recognizing was the place of the worshipper, the place of the subject, the subject who worships Brahman. Hmm. So the worshipper for Devendranath was also as important to the structure of creation. While Tragore draws on this revision of Vedanta, he takes it much further. In the bhakti tradition, there was a certain asymmetry between the self-sufficient excess of Krishna, the Lord, the God, because he had infinite powers of love, who was the object 
of love of 5000 gopinis in addition to radha so there was always an asymmetry within this love hmm. this was an asymmetry that could be deployed to preserve and reinforce social hierarchies that existed within followers of krishna so the more powerful would be the one who would have greater amounts of love than those who were less powerful those were subaltern the hierarchical principle between the creator and the worshipper is not jettisoned by Mahaj, uh, by devendranath on the other hand the ghost stresses the centrality of mutuality that central of mutuality the creator is by definition not self sufficient he cannot be recuperated into his own identity for that would be tantamount to the impossible feat of self destruction because once he achieves identity then he also cancels out love because love requires another the logic of tagore's metaphysical tale is actually pretty radical in it the creator through his act of creation becomes transformed into the principle of love the creator is manifested not through his identity but by the symmetrical relationship of mutuality between self and other the I'll, let me just uh, tease out some of the implications of this creation story which has overturned the idea of the single creator and the worshipper and so on the most important implication of this to me is that the universal principle of creation is seen as a process rather than as a law with its criteria of judgment the universal is not an end in which identity with the principle of the universal could be achieved so it's not as if the universal is there and your whole object through worship or through other means is to achieve oneness with that principle of universality hmm. so it is identity is radically erased this recognition leads to go to abjure the idea of the universal itself for the principle of universalization and that's the most important move i think he makes from the universal to universalization the universal is a process that engages the world and hence there is movement but not determinate telos the basis of universalization are two both of which stem from his creation story the foundational one is the privileging of creation for it manifests god's being that lies in the acts of love so creation itself that this world is privileged as a consequence because this world manifests god's love and the principle of love uh <clears throat> the concerns of this world then become continuous with the properly theological preoccupation with the metaphysical the metaphysical is not seen as the end point of creation as much as the broad logic on which creation functions in its different aspects and its different interrelationships this means that the multiple concerns with problems and complexities of this world has to bear weight of theological inquiry but not necessarily of metaphysical import so it's really a metaphysics that's actually pushing you to think about this world and its interrelationships it is this that supplies the foundation for tagore's later conception of man as the foundation and object of religious thought he calls it the religion of man i mean that's how he ends in his last part of his uh, career in his thinking the second basis of universalization is provided by the interrelated ideas of love unity and harmony as the organizing principles of this world this requires clarification the way love works itself out in this world is not by achieving identity with the world but by establishing relationships of intimacy intimacy as opposed to relationships of distance as relationships of using somebody else that is of instrumentality or of certainly of antagonism that would be the obverse so intimacy would be distinguished from all these other kinds of relationships uh 
intimacy between the different elements, the different others of the self in this world. That is what he is seeking to achieve through this idea of love. Which means that unity does not equal oneness. Actually, the point that Tagore, the word that Tagore uses as equivalent to love, to unity, is another word called harmony. Hmm. Harmony is, in musical terms, distinguished from the singularity of the melodic line. Harmony means a concordance of different lines of music, including counterpointing elements, together with constantly, if not rapidly, varying tempos. It is a trope that's used by Tagore that illumin illuminates the idea of unity and creation as one in which the different elements of crea creation with which the subject enters into relationships of intimacy and mutual mutuality. In other words, harmony is a kind of process of different elements coming together in different conjunctions. Hmm. So coming together without achieving a stable oneness, a stable identity. Love, of course, demands agency, and this raises the issue of what makes the world move towards forming the multiplicity of relationships, because on its own, this can lead anywhere, the kind of constant sense of interrelationships. Here, Tagore's mobilization of the concept of the ideal is important. The ideal has been a well-worked area in modern thought and has fulfilled the work of a motivating agency in producing the future, because you're always looking forward to an ideal. That's what we are told. You, this is the ideal you aspire towards. In an ordinary sense, the ideal indicates a model that requires to be followed. In the context of modern Indian thought, uh, <clears throat> the ideal acquires another salience. It works as a bridge between the metaphysical world of perfection with the this-worldly zone of lack, of something that you don't have and you're always trying to fulfill it by reaching out to the ideal. Also, it tends to designate, tends to define a desired social subject, a social model. Bonkim uh, Chatterjee's Krishna, for instance, is the ideal Hindu male subject who lives in this world without relinquishing the divine attributes that is naturally due to him. So he's the ideal model subject who, as it were, acts as the kind of bridge between the metaphysical and this worldly. On the other hand, Vivekananda raises the idealhood of the Brahmin to whom actually existing Brahmins and other castes need to approximate. In a sense, Tagore follows in the tracks of these thinkers in conceiving of the ideal as one that brings the divine to the earth, acts as a hinge. But he also changes the nature of the ideal into a social one that is not so much a model. For him, the ideal is not so much a model, but as something that orients the enterprise of unity. Because unity, remember, is harmony, which is a concatenation of different elements. So the ideal is something that's orienting the unity towards a certain direction, in a certain direction. It is, this, uh, <coughs> it is the ideal that provides the subjective motivation and the direction in which to knit the world together. It is this necessary act of stitching the world together into different relationships of intimacy through which the divisions of nationalism, which I had initially invoked and which I'll come to perfunctorily later, which he saw as definitive of colonialism. He saw it both as the same. And colonialism and nationalism as something that was dividing the world into self-destructive entities. It is against this that he posits the idea of love that can through intimacy, produce and stitch together in this dynamic harmony a sense of togetherness and complementarity. This is all the more necessary, and the ideal is all the more necessary since unity is a process and achie uh, achievement, uh, a process 
rather than a fact of achievement. In other words, Tagore specifies, in other places, sorry, Tagore specifies the nature of process as something that is based on improvisation, as something like a river that keeps bending and turning rather than the ocean, which is its own master. So he's always privileging the process rather than the end. Hmm. The ideal, and this of course comes out from this notion of harmony which I've been trying to elaborate. The ideal provides orientation to this process so that it moves towards unity. And this is absolutely necessary since the ideal has to move the world away from the actual realities of nationalism that structures his world. Now the key ideal for Tagore is that of cooperation. And here I will come to a kind of, as it were, a second part of my presentation today, uh, uh, a shorter part, hopefully, which will look at really the practices of what Tagore conceives as love. Mm. And I do this through the practices of Vishwabharati. But first, the ideal of cooperation which for Tagore is central. It is central because it possesses the conceptual and practical energy to confront and supplant nationalism. In his essays on nationalism, Tagore directly poses the ideal of cooperation against that of competition, which he says forms and supplies the basis of nationalism. <clears throat> Let me hear very briefly, since nationalism has been talked about at some length, and I've also written a lot on uh, Tagore's nationalism, just in parenthesis, say that Tagore's conception of nationalism did not regard it as the opposite of the global, nor as something that was complicit with the process of globalization. For Tagore, nationalism was a mode of organizing the global itself. So it was the dominant form of thinking, conceptualizing, and practicing the global. <clears throat> One that tended to be self-destructive. It arose, nationalism arose from competitive accumulation that led to the development of progressively larger organizations, of corporations, if you like, that took the final shape of the nations, which then competed amongst themselves to use or marginalize other nations and communities. Its counterpoint, and in this form, let me just add that nationalism in that sense is a much larger concept, it seems to me, in Tagore than just uh, a nation state. It tends to also produce and also include within it ethnicities, collectivities with strongly pronounced boundaries and territorial uh, 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 imaginaries. <clears throat> now, against this, he poses the idea of cooperation because nationalism, he sees, is coming from the history of competition and the history of privileging competitive accumulation. Uh, <clears throat> its counterpoint, cooperation, was, of course, an established ideal in the 19th and early 20th centuries, and which underlies the work of utopian socialists, as we all know, like Robert Owen, to that of Peter Kropotkin, the continental anarchist, and more uh, closer home <coughs> to Tagore, home in inverted commas, by George Russell, an Irish literateur. He was part of the Irish revival, who was also a pioneer of the cooperative movement in Ireland late 19th and early 20th century, <clears throat> and who propagated the ideal of a cooperative commonwealth. Russell's work on cooperatives inspired Tagore. Russell's notion of cooperation derived from the idea of cooperatives. It was symmetrically joined to idea of cooperation. The whole idea was that slowly you have more and more cooperatives, a bit like Owens, and it will take over the social world the life world of the political and the social and the economic, and that will produce a new nation which will be the cooperative commonwealth. <clears throat> now, 
Russell <coughs> and the basic idea here is that of willed individual effort that individuals make that is com are committed to making an effort towards sharing in the act of shared productive activity. In a way, that's the kernel of the cooperative ideal. <clears throat> now, Tagore draws on this idea of individuals coming together, sharing, and producing an activity uh, which is productive of the collective individual uh, efforts. But I think he also exceeds this idea of cooperation that comes from cooperatives. Uh, Tagore defined the task of Vishwabharati, which was the university that he established in Bengal, as one of entering into a variety of cooperations. So cooperations was not just a single mode, it was multiple. <clears throat> Cooperation involved a spectrum of relationships of sharing that involved not only cultural and social relationships that were larger entities than those produced by individual will. So he was talking about cooperations in much more global and much more collective senses than what could be explained only by individual wills, but also many modes of establishing relationships that involved unwilled shock to voluntary reaching out to the other. So it also involves not just the exercise of voluntary will, but also how you see involuntary shock as it comes to you, and how do you then produce a new relationship of intimacy with what comes towards you. Uh, it is this mosaic of relationships that allows Tagore's cooperation to do two things. The first is that it allows the building of a distinctive global habitation in Vishwabharati that exceeds the scope of a university campus or even a university town. Because the idea here is not just of producing the ideal model university. It is of producing a global habitation. So this is a very different kind of enterprise in a certain sense from a regular university model. Secondly, in dealing with the ethical problems of producing an alternate habitation, Vishwabharati generates a great many practices, many of which extend the conceptual framework of located universalism. I will look at three modes of cooperation that produces Vishwabharati as a global habitation, and I will conclude after that. <clears throat> as a university, Shantiniketan set out to produce new knowledges, and this had behind it two very strong impelling drives. The first was to bring together the different knowledge systems of India and of the East with which parts of which India had cultural links. Vishwabharati's research program sought to encourage Orientalist scholars to re do research on a number of conventional Indological areas such as Buddhism that had a pan-Asian reach, but also explore folk traditions that including serious studies of bhakti and of syncretic traditions such as those of Kabir's poetry. The attempt here was to produce the India stroke East as a zone of interactions which would release a process of consolidating these knowledges. The process of consolidation was linked to a second ambition. The whole hope was that it would be a platform in which scholars would exchange their different researches to produce a new East, a new conception of knowledge of the East. The second ambition was to study the West in order to internalize its knowledges. It would, uh, Shantiniketan would also open up a possible bridge for the West to understand and access the knowledges of the East. So Shantiniketan, through studying the West, would also provide a hinge, as it were, to the West. It is important to note here that English was also studied as a constituent subject of Indian knowledges. Vishwabharati was not based on a binary opposition of the East and the West, even as the distinction between them was important to its overall conceptions. 
This has something to do with the way Tagore looked at the idea of the foreign and of the foreign cultural product. For Tagore, the foreign was something that had to be valued as part of the self. The introduction of foreign elements posed a shock to the self that churned up its routines of life and of its reproductions. So, for instance, he would talk about Islam, not in terms of invasion, but in terms of cultural shock by producing, by bringing the ideas of equality or of, uh, 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 of quote-unquote colonialism, of producing the ideas of romanticism so, or of justice. So, in a way, he's reinscribing unwilled acts of shock which are normally seen as invasions as new ways of looking at cultural interactions. How? Because shock produces self, uh, because the introduction of foreign elements poses a shock to the self, which churns up its normal routines of life and its reproduction of life. So the normal routines are disturbed. It produces self-division and generates a process through which the self reconstitutes itself. So shock becomes then some way by which a process, self enters a process of reconstitution. Cultural exchange through shock and conflict could go together with the more peaceful mode of willed internalization of the other's culture. Thus, Vishwabharati offered a platform for Indological scholars from West, such as Sylvan Levy and Morris Winstonitz, to work together with those from India and Asia. The foreign scholar's perspective on Indological research was to be a dynamic and hence constitutive input into consolidating Indian knowledges. Now, this process of cultural exchange was, of course, mapped onto Vishwabharati, which was a spatial location. And that was to provide the platform for interaction. Now, just a few words on the location of Vishwabharati, which I think is also pretty interesting. Linked by railways to Calcutta that was located about 100 miles away, it allowed fairly easy access to steamship routes all over the world and later to airplanes as well. This was very important since an important part of the life of Shantiniketan was travel. Tagore himself almost regularly spent a great part of the year traveling to other parts of the country and the world, and this was true of many of the scholars and workers of Shantiniketan and Vishwabharati. These travels were written about in detail in university publication and disseminated through lectures. Also, it might be interesting to note that the university was populated by middle-class students from Calcutta, mainly Calcutta, and from other places in India. But the university space was also crossed by villagers who lived nearby and whose mobility, especially those of the Adivasis uh, who belonged to villages in the neighborhood, has been commemorated by the monumental environmental sculpture of Ramkinkar Bej. Some of the grandest sculptures of modern uh, India, which are there in Shantiniketan, which is about tribal life and tribal migrations and crossings. It should not be forgotten that Shantiniketan was located in the interior with Bolpur, the nearest town, about two miles away. So what I just wanted to show a map was that this is also a habitational space of interactions, which allows hospita hospitality to the process of cultural interactions because it is connected to the global and yet not located in the metropolis. It is in the interiors, neighboring the villages, and crisscrossed by different kinds of migrations from different centers. The site of Shantiniketan was characterized by its openness, mainly because it consisted of infertile but visually attractive red earth. This was late 19th century. It was the emptiness of the space that allowed that allowed itself to be colonized and re-inscribed by the architecture and habitational practices of Vishwabharati. 
Over time, Shantiniketan was filled up with vegetation that was sourced from different parts of the world. In terms of habitation, it provided a mixture of brick and mortar that went into the making of the main buildings and of cottages with straw roofs meant for residential accommodation. Brick, binding, brick buildings were slowly standardized over time as the maintenance of cottages proved difficult, especially since there was an influx of visitors. Social life was built around fairly active sets of interactions with Tagore as its center. Madame Levy, uh, Sylvan Levy's wife, was there in the 1920s. She was the first kind of visiting professor. Tells us, from the perspective of a European housewife, how she and her husband were transformed by the kinship terms deployed by the inmates, and how they had to use bullock carts to visit other places which also is interesting when you think of the airplane, the steamship, the railway, and the bullock cart. It's in one continuum, as it were, of interactions. In short, the habitational space of Vishwabharati brought together extreme heterogeneities of metropolitan life with those of the rural rhythms of travel and settlement to produce an unusual mix that remains its distinctive feature today despite the bureaucratization that has set in with government management. And finally, uh, the last kind of idea, uh, as you can see, this is in a way very different from Russell's concept of cooperation. It has many other uh, 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 sorts of implications as, uh, which we can uh, discuss later. But let me just come now to cooperatives also. Now, Transforming the conceptual design of located universalism into a habitation that would reach out to the world in a transformative gesture is also something that extends the idea and the practice and uh, idea and the framework of located universalism. While Tagore's conception of located universalism is basically cultural in nature and it's about knowledges. The ethical pressure of inhabiting an alternative middle-class world in the midst of extremely poor villages generates a move towards extending cooperation to economic and social spheres. <clears throat> the motivation behind starting Sriniketan, which was the twin of Shantiniketan, it was meant as the center for rural development, quote-unquote, was to go self-criticism about Shantiniketan that as a university, it treated its surrounding villages and villagers in a purely instrumental way, as resources from which you get milk and butter and bread and that sort of stuff. And hence, it was necessary to overcome this instrumentality and establish relationships of intimacy with it. The result was Sriniketan, which is the rural development wing of Vishwabharati. Uh, Sriniketan is actually, though it seems to be more, more local than Shantiniketan and Vishwavarati, about which everybody knows in a certain sense, and it's globally disseminated, Sriniketan is as global an institution as Shantiniketan, in fact, probably foundationally more than Shantiniketan, which was founded by uh, 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 Tagore. Here, Sriniketan was co-founded by an Englishman, Leonard Elmhurst, who was worked with Tagore and under Tagore's inspiration and with the financial backing of his American wife, Dorothy. It was regarded by many, including Tagore, to get towards the end of his life as the signal achievement of Vishwabharati as a whole. Sriniketan's work consisted of six departments that included different facets of agricultural and artisanal life, and one of its main wings, that was its credit cooperatives, extended its services to about 400 villages. So it was pretty huge in its scope. What I wish to very briefly focus on here is one of its main sites of activity, that is its agricultural cooperatives. Cooperatives exemplified the economic and ethical program of rural development, which Tagore named Atmoshokti. It was designed to mobilize poor peasants to share their economic resources in order to use machinery, increase productivity, and control distribution and the value addition that it brought. 
Members of the Sriniketan Co-ops could subscribe by either a small fee or by contributing their labor. So it really was actually directed to very poor peasants. Technical innovations at Sriniketan were produced and then disseminated to the farmers with co-ops being one of the main channels. So Sriniketan also did a lot of research, agricultural research. <clears throat> Cooperativization was a means of producing new subjects who would think and work independently and on their own initiative. But also subjects who would work together with others and work with the knowledges that was necessary for production and distribution knowledges that required it to uh, required the subject to understand how world economic flows and flows of agriculture work so in that sense also getting knitted in with global flows uh, it would thereby remove what Tagore called grammota that is a narrow rural mentality so in that sense Tagore is also seeking to transform the local. He's also trying to transform the rural, the subjectivities associated with the rural and so on and so forth. So the local itself was sought to be reconstituted through a process towards a new sense of self-dependence through the other. And that's very important, an idea of self-possession through the other. Which brings me now to the end of my uh, presentation. And uh, one of the questions uh, when I was in one of the research institutes, a colleague had started this project and which I've been trying to grapple with, a question was asked by this colleague of mine who was also working on, uh, uh, on something which he said uh, parallel this in a very different way, parallel because it was also failure. Because Vishwabharati was handed over to the government at the end of Tagore's life and in a sense it ended that kind of experimental phase of Vishwabharati as it came under government regulations, even though it was given a certain kind of uh, privilege as it's, uh, as a, to preserve its distinctiveness and so on and so forth. But it represented a failure because it represented the end of that experimental uh, understanding of a global habitation. It came under the nation state. Now, uh, this raises whole questions of how does one look at, you know, the history of failures in a certain sense. Uh, one would be, I think, to go with what I would loosely call the postmodern and look at it in terms of aporias. Aporias that in a way structure some of our uh, basic conditions of modernity. Uh, other, the simpler idea which I... Uh, kind of was initiated when I was a student of history, was we learn from failures. So what are the lessons that we learn? And a third kind of way of looking at failure, which has influenced me, again, as a student of, when I was a student of history, was the E.P. Thompson idea of failure as possibility. Because, as he said, you know, when we look back at the past, we tend to patronize the past and, you know, and see their failures. But you don't know what has failed and what has succeeded and you don't know what the future holds. I mean, it's in a way you're actually blocking of the future by saying that the past has ended. So I think, in a way, for me, uh, that has been the most influential way for me to look at uh, 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 Vishwabharati, to look at located universalism and the kind of structures that it brought into play both in terms of concepts and in terms of practices. And two things I think uh, uh, which important and probably resonates with our times as well in very complex and different ways is uh, I think uh, one of the things that I do carry out, carry away from it is this idea of universalism as a process of universalization. I think in a way it at least brings for me a pretty powerful sort of uh, uh, concept uh, with which one can look at many of the major debates on cosmopolitanism today, which is actually dealing with that basic problem which Tagore dealt with. That is, how do you deal with a world that is coming together and falling apart at the same time? So. Uh, the universal has been seen as 
a principle or a set of principles. But I think where Tagore uh, really uh, contributes some important kind of moves is this idea that the world is in a process of universalization or ought to be in a process of universalization as counter to this. Uh, and that located universalism are the two components of located universalism are both in a state of formation. So located universalism, unlike uh, many of the kinds of things about incommensurabilities and so on and so forth, is not about a stable location and then uh, bringing uh, whatever is global and adding on to that, as it were. Uh, but here, the location itself is also in a state of formation. So both universalization and location are both in a state of process and of formation. And both of these, as it were, they produce two axes on which the global ought to work for Tagore and, try, and he tries to make it work through Vishwa Bharati, that they consist of multiple processes, multiple practices, three of which I kind of tried to bring to the fore over here. And they work in relative autonomy, the located and the universal, but the relative part of it should be equally emphasized because they're also interacting with each other. So it's a constantly dynamic axis of two kinds of principles of the located and the uh, universal which are working in tandem with each other. So I think it's a pretty interesting and important sort of uh, way of thinking about the principle of the universal itself, which is uh, you know, one of the key problems uh, before, you know, before cosmopolitanism and so on. A second which is uh, in, uh, which I think resonates with many other thinkers of modern India is that it's you know, in a way both conceptual and practical. And that's what I wanted to actually bring out in this presentation in this structure of both the conceptual and the practical. In a way, it reminds you of the idea of praxis. You know, this very commonsensical way, Marxist idea of praxis, which is unity of ideas and practice. Now, uh, the point in Tagore, I think, however, is that unity is not equal to identity. Within the Marxist concept, praxis is identity of practice and concept. In Tagore, I don't think the identity works. The conceptual sketches the horizon of ideality which is never to be reached, but which is absolutely essential if the world is to survive. So the ideal in that sense, which I've talked about, it's really it sketches out the horizon for different practices then to be generated and to, as it were, orient themselves by that ideal without ever reaching it and becoming identical with that ideal in that sense. Uh, and I think it is this baseline, the baseline of survival, uh, which I think Tagore very starkly addresses in very many ways. And I think, for me, it at least makes him a very important thinker of our times. So thank you very much. Thank you.